Hello pod, how the devil are you? I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that doesn't care whether Kate and Will's baby is a girl or a boy, just as long as his mother isn't a hamster and his father smells of elderberries, uh, which is unlikely to be fair. Uh, as ever, I'm joined by three of my glorious colleagues, Helen O'Hara, Ali Plum and Ian Freer. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Identify yourself. Helen. Hello. That's you. Ali. Hi. And Ian. Hey. So people know who they're listening to. Today we'll be discussing the latest movie news, reviewing what's in cinemas this weekend, and we'll be joined by a veritable treasure trove of guests, from side series writers and stars Alice Lowe and Steve Oram, to Seven Psychopaths director and star Martin McDonough and Sam Rockwell, and brilliant Brit producers, well, one Brit, one American, Mark Herbert and Mary Burke, the people behind Warp Films, as they celebrate their 10th birthday. But first... In Grand Empire Podcast Tradition, we're going to rifle through our mailbag and answer some of your questions. So, at Acacia Acer asks, Have any of you watched the complete works of any actor, director, writer? I'm three off a complete Ed Norton. <laughs> wow. What, uh, what? I guess it depends on what you mean by complete works, isn't it? There's a lot of directors who I've seen every feature film they've made. Yeah, same here. But... I guess probably the only person I've seen everything... I know who this is. ...is Steven Spielberg. Yes. Where I've seen all the feature films, all the TV episodes, uh, the couple of shorts. I've seen some of his home movies that are not commercially available. So I've seen pretty much... How have you seen those? Uh, through Amblin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't break into his house? And no. Rifle through his private collection. So he says... Don't, don't do no. that. So I wrote, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Complete Spielberg, and if you haven't seen everything, it's a kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lie. Yes. The 76% yeah. could be Spielberg. Uh, but, you know, I've seen every Martin Scorsese feature, but there are like Amani adverts I haven't seen and stuff. So, mm. so I'm close with a lot of people. Actors, I guess it's difficult. I'm nearly there with Harrison Ford, I guess. You must and, be there, Harrison Ford. There's everything. some kind of early 70s things, maybe not. Really? And uh, De Niro, I'm pretty much there with De Niro. Okay. Well, that's interesting, because I'm, I'm, I'm there with Raimi, but I haven't seen a couple of the uh, early shorts that he did with Bruce Campbell in, in high school. I think I've seen part of Within the Woods, but not all of Within the Woods. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a huge completist when it comes to that. I've seen I'm- all of Ben Wheatley's films. All three. All three of them. Well, no, he's, he's on well, the fourth now. Yeah, oh, no, I haven't I'm, seen I'm a film behind, in behind the curve. <laughs> Damn it. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, a similar thing. I've seen, you know, lots of people's sort of commercially produced uh, feature stuff. I, I wouldn't claim to have seen all everybody's student films and so on, but, you know, I'm pretty up to date on my Coens and my Spielbergs, not perhaps quite as much as Yui. Um, right. and, uh, and, and the like. Lots of people probably have seen most of their stuff. I think there are a couple of directors that I think pretty much everyone at the table here will have watched all of their oeuvre, uh, <laughs> like um, Quentin Tarantino, which chances are yeah. I yeah. will have probably seen Easy all of enough. this. Uh, I think the question here that's most interesting for me is the actor thing, because if you have an actor that you absolutely love, you kind of hunt them down. You start trying to watch all of you them. You don't hunt the actor down. Yeah, no, not, you don't. not in a no. killing way. No. Not in a killing way. Not again. So often a uh, postscript of things I say. Uh, but yeah, one of them for me is somebody who's on this week's podcast, which is a bit of a spoiler, but it is Sam Rockwell is somebody I have, again, hunted down as the wrong phrase, but tried to watch as many of as possible. Some of them are pretty bad. No offense, Sam. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying some of them aren't his best, um, but I've watched everything from Robin's Big Date, which is an online short he did which with Justin Long. very fun. Uh, which is rather amusing. Uh, and you know, obviously, he's great in Galaxy Quest, and you know, little little pieces like that. Lawn Dogs, I think. Charlie's Angels, probably where I'd start with Lawn mm-hmm. Dogs. I'm not talking about his little bits, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, he'd probably be my one. 
Okay, interesting. Because I mean, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Ed Norton's filmography, because of Acacia Acer is only three of a complete Ed Norton. Bear in mind, there's a, a film coming out, I think next year, called All In for the 99%. Yay, soapbox. Um, so that means that obviously there are great films yeah. on Ed Norton's filmography. Absolutely. Uh, he made a splash of Primal Fear. Fight Club, mm-hmm. of course, is on there. This year he had Moonrise Kingdom, which was excellent, and The Bourne Legacy, which was um, uh, uh, the fourth in The Bourne series. Um, American History X is great. American History X, Kingdom of Heaven. He makes us that, that, that sort of uncredited appearance, doesn't he? Does, he does, yeah. Oh, it, yeah. I, w- I hope she's con- he or she has counted that. The brilliant 25th hour. I'm just going through it here. It's so what the, likely, what are the three? What do we think? Underrated Death to Smoochie. The, the score, three. maybe. Well, Death to Smoochie is quite hard to get hold of in this country. It, it is quite hard to get hold of, so it might be that. Um, and then there are, there are some shockers. So, for example, do you watch The Invention of Lion, which is a Ricky Gervais film, which is absolutely dreadful because he he cameos as a cop in one scene. So, do you watch that film? Yeah, you do. You yeah, do. You do. If you, you want to be if you want to be a Norton completist, do you stop after <laughs> he appears? <laughs> no, no. I, I would. I would watch that film all the way through because I know you hate it, obviously, and I didn't like it either. But I was, I was watching it on an, uh, an airplane, and, and I kind of thought to myself, "Yeah, I'm carrying on." I would have walked out the cinema at this point, but you kind of enjoy it. But you weren't it. willing to walk out of the plane. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Do you watch the episode of The Simpsons, which he uh, lent his voice to? Oh, you've seen it. You've seen it already. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same. So, what, what, what were the three? What would the three be? People versus Larry Flynn. Now, everyone's seen Never that. Everyone's seen that. Everyone's seen that one. So, Acacia, if you if you're listening to this, and I hope you are. Do write in and tell us what the three are. We're intrigued. We're intrigued. Um, at Alexander Parker asks, what are your favourite instances of movie titles set within the movie? Now, this is, a, I believe, a, a feature in Arrival magazine, so uh, we, we won't spend too long on this one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> what thought you about? Uh, it's Chinatown, Jake. And what's that from? That's from... Jake. It's <laughs> Jake the movie. <laughs> I'll go for um, the incredible way that A View to a Kill wangled A View to a Kill in, <laughs> which how you get Bond titles into dialogue is always a oh it's always painful uh, yeah and they I never really that. tried with Quantum of Solace did they so no they, no they copped out there but that's my favourite Walken gives it a little twang as well so that's great I've got quite a few actually um, I'm Iron Man which is a great moment in that film mm-hmm. right at the very end and it's Groundhog Day in the radio over and over what over. film is that from? It's Chinatown. <laughs> right. I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, oh, God, I, I can't really think beyond uh, Back to the Future, of course. Mm, it's a yeah. shame. There are a lot of movies which it doesn't happen. You know, no one ever says the word alien in Alien, for example. Am I right? I'm right. True. Yeah. I am yeah. right. Okay. I am, I'm well right. I'm, I couldn't be more right. Um, no one ever says it's the dawn of the dead in Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which you think would be... <laughs> On everyone's minds, yeah. so um, it'd be great if they said it's Romero's Dawn of the Dead. You know, that would be. Yeah, this is George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> oh my God! There's John Carpenter's The Fog. <laughs> Beware of John Carpenter's The Fog. Um, so yeah, Back to the Future. I'm sure there's loads. There's Miller's Crossing is a good one as well. They keep they keep talking about Miller's Crossing, which is just in the middle of the woods. It doesn't make any sense. Why would that be called a crossing? Because it's Miller's. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I haven't really thought about that as it's probably... Oh, um, and Breakfast Club at the very end. Yes, excellent. Well done. So uh, moving on now from Spectator, at Spectator, uh, says, what are your favourite movie weddings? Oh my goodness, I like so many of them because they're so beautiful. Okay. No, I right. don't know. I, I really can't back that up. Um, there are probably some really pretty ones, but... 
Um, you give us a lot of thought in him. Well, no, I, honestly, I did think about this, and I kept getting bogged down in the sort of the chick flick, overproduced, mega expensive weddings, which quite irritate me because you're sitting watching them, going, "That would cost a hundred thousand dollars. What the heck is this school teacher marrying this cop doing, having that wedding?" Mm. And it kind of annoys me a lot of the time. You do spend so. a lot of money on weddings, though, don't you? you People mean? do, but you know, some of them are ridiculous. Like genuinely, the, the, the hundred thousand dollar thing kind of comes in in that awful Bride Wars, where they have that amazing wedding at the Plaza, and one of them is literally meant to be a school teacher, and she's getting married at the Plaza in New York. Now, in fairness, they say she's been saving all her life, but seriously, woman, get a grip. Um, anyway, so I quite like um, Rachel's getting married. There's a backyard wedding in that, which is quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and shoot me, but I quite like some of the weddings in... Uh, oh, no, i tell you what the best one is. The best one is the one in um, Gentlemen Fair Blondes on the ship back over to the USA. Okay, good one. Twin wedding, it's cool. A twin wedding. Excellent. Well, yeah, well, your romantic well, soul. I am indeed, yeah. I'll go for The Godfather then. <laughs> 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 Which has the best nailing of a bridesmaid against the back door <laughs> in, in, any, in any movie, I think. It is. Um, but yeah. I, if I pick one, I'd go for... Um, I don't think many people have seen this film. It's called Fandango with Kevin Costner oh, yeah. and Sam Robards. And it's about a road trip. And kind of at the end of it, Sam Robards... Uh, decides he has to marry Susie Amis so they fly her in and the whole town get together and string up some lights and they, they make a sort of homemade wedding for them and no. it's absolutely beautiful and then uh, Kevin Costner who's had a thing for Susie Amis all his life dances a fandango Aww. with Susie Amis and it's a lovely moment set to Pat Metheny so that's my favourite wedding it's very sweet okay Ali. recently a very good one was End of Watch which we mentioned in the last podcast yeah Jake. really good one yeah. get this right Gyllenhaal Gyllenhaal yep. damn it he dances very very well in that um, I would also say I need to get it right which Dalton movie is it where he parachutes in um, License to Kill License, License to, to kill. kill yeah that's a very good one just because you know parachutes always make a wedding it's a good interest the thing I always found about License to Kill is that basically uh, at the end of that Bond and Felix Leiter uh, Bond especially who's meant to be a secret agent right no one's meant to know what this guy does he parachutes into a wedding holding a gun <laughs> and it's just like, really, what? Are you, I, I just imagine the, uh, the the speech. Just, what do you do again? Oh, I'm a painter and decorator. But isn't it? He doesn't care that yeah. people know that he's a secret agent, which is why he says, "I'm Bond, James Bond." All the time. <laughs> yeah. He just doesn't care. But then, what's the point of Universal Exports in the cover story? Uh, I'm James Bond of MI6. I think it's I'm been, a secret agent. It's I'm in well town. established, isn't it, that James Bond is a terrible spy? <laughs> he is absolutely. You terrible. know, as an as an yeah. operative, he may be good, but as a spy, he's. Yeah, I also think you, should, you shouldn't accept any invite to a wedding that James Bond's going to. They, they always end in tears, don't they? It's like parties that Bruce Wayne gets invited to. They just always end up badly, don't they? Yeah, precisely. I'll tell you what. Another really good one would be uh, either the Philadelphia Story or obviously. A high society that'd be a good wedding yeah, to go great. to yeah. apart from anything else the other guests are amazing yeah, yeah. you know Jimmy Stewart or Frank Sinatra you know choose your pick yeah Louis yeah. Armstrong doing your music absolutely that, that, that how much would he be there's websites you can get in there. what to play music <laughs> yeah because you know at my wedding I, I think our pianist cost a couple of hundred quid what would Louis Armstrong be well obviously a lot more now but back in the day, what, what would he be? The hologram version the of Louis hologram, Armstrong. Yeah, the hologram of Louis, Louis Armstrong. Surprised none of you guys went for um, any comedic weddings, like four weddings or uh, four weddings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 27 dresses. There's a, there's a very good one in a film called Plaza Suite with uh, Walter Matthau yes. where he's a, he's a father of the bride and she won't come out of the hotel room. And it's basically set in a hotel room and it's him trying to get her to go to a wedding. And that's, that's very funny. It's very sweet. Neil Simon film. 
I suddenly thought of the one that you only see for a couple of seconds, but in Up, um, very, very early on, which is so sweet. Yeah, between Ellie and Carl. Yeah. Oh. With the balloons. Doesn't end well, though, does it? Never does. Doesn't end well. Just uh, no. it doesn't end well for Felix Leiter and his uh, his bride. Yeah. Francois Truffaut once said that Della. a comedy that ends in a marriage is a tragedy about to begin. Oh, I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we bring in for you here. That's, that's why this man gets paid the big bucks. Okay, so that's movie weddings, and no one mentioned the, either uh, the wedding of Reed Richards and Susan Richards in Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer. Oh, can, can you I believe forget? it? Yeah, which, on the bright side, you know, disrupted. desirable rooftop location, lovely, and Stanley um, in the guest and, list. Yes, exactly. Well, very. Not very on no, the guest he list. wasn't on the guest list. Not he on the guest finding, list. I was going to say a very high level of gate crasher. That's right. Yeah. Um, at that wedding, uh, so that's, those would be the upside. Mm-hmm. The downside would be the sort of you know imminent destruction of the world which comes to light halfway through the ceremony damn it damn it oh and uh, one more uh, how can I ignore the beautiful wedding of uh, Padme Amidala and Anakin Skywalker well that that's in in uh, lead on to our next question oh really which okay. is about um, well it's about subplots isn't it oh wow okay do you want to do that which is about yeah. which subplot would you like to see the full movie for see, see we've, uh, we've never done this before joined up thinking before you know Phil just sits there and, and I don't know what Phil even does breathes. in this podcast but he breathes heavily and then scratches his beard into the mic and but that's, Ian that's you're bringing something yeah I am so I would like to see the aftermath of that wedding because it must be the most miserable reception <laughs> you've ever been to in your life and there's old metal hand and bad hair doing some terrible dance to George Michael's Careless Whisper or something. <laughs> 3PO and RTD2. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go to see that, would you? You would not. So the no, question, the I'd question was... I'd be leaving early at that reception. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. The question was... But no one would kick off, would they? Um, the question was from at Campbell Wardy, and it was, what movie subplot would you like to see as a film movie? For me, it's how the unit from Predator was formed. Yeah, so I'd like to see The Attack of the Clones, The Fall Wedding, <laughs> all of that. And I'd also like to see uh, more of Pulp Fiction's The Wolf. Who, who, has, who is so brilliant and so revered because he throws a blanket over some bodies and washes some people down and that makes him some kind of expert in, in body <laughs> removal. So I want to know, how does he get to become some kind of genius at, at post-crime sequences? You know, how, yeah. how does he work that out? How did that happen? Because he's useless as far as I'm concerned. It's common sense. <laughs> it, it'd be like reverse C- CSI, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wow. Well, how bad are they? How bad are Vincent and Jules that they can't figure this out themselves? Yeah, honestly. You know. You know, just go to a, go to a safe place, buy some new clothes, and there you go. It's Tor- not torch the car. Sound, is it? Yeah. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. Uh, Ali, what do you got? Uh, well, we mentioned Back to the Future earlier, but I want to know how um, you know an aged P with a PhD made friends with a small schoolboy who likes skating about on his skateboard. I'd like to know about their adventures in friendship uh, early on. That, that's because Zemeckis has talked about this, and that's why the speaker at the beginning is so kind of important. It kind of tie looking to tie to give you some sense of why they might be friends. Mm-hmm. Is that that giant speaker? Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point, uh, Helen. Well, I would actually like to see, it's not quite so much a subplot, as I would like to see the aftermath of some horror films. You know, generally speaking, we're left with one survivor and everybody around them has been killed horribly. Yeah. And and we're supposed to believe that this is essentially a good thing that they survive and everything is, is going to be fine now. But, like, clearly, in a lot of cases, they're going to be under suspicion, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be probably imprisoned because they haven't got any rational explanation of what happened. They've got... Oh, a monster did it. Um, And, you know, it kind of seems like these people would probably have a terrible time after the film ends, never mind during it. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's probably a good thing uh, that Ash gets transported back to medieval times exactly. at the end of Evil Dead 2 because he would have a lot of explaining to do, <laughs> quite a frankly. Lot. He's it's got like, a, a chainsaw in his arm. Yeah. You know? This is it. And, hey. you know, white hair that he didn't have. I think he went, he went to the cabin for the weekend, Ash. How did that go? He's just covered in blood and shaking and the <laughs> cops have got him and five people, four people are dead. And, uh, of course, his hand, his severed yeah. hand is responsible. His fingerprints are all over the place. There's a lot of physical evidence. Grissom and the gang would have a field day. Grissom would have him strung up. Need the wolf there. <laughs> yes, yeah, he could, he could just clean it a bit. How is it down? Set on fire? Done. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. So uh, CSI horror films. Uh, that's that's the next one. We got to see that one. Yeah, the one I would say. I'm I'm not a big fan of stuff like this because generally speaking, this leads us into prequel territory, and I'm not a huge fan of prequels. As like the story we 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 want to see is a story that's unfolding in front of us. Uh, I don't like stories that are robbed of tension, although, Ian, there are some great prequels. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, having said that, and I think I've said this in the show before, one subplot I'd like to see, instead of the film we actually did see, is uh, Indiana Jones' Adventures in World War II with Jim Robinson. Because yeah. mm. uh, that would be amazing. You know, that scene in, in Crystal Skull Absolutely, where yeah, right. Jim Robinson goes, hey, this is uh, this is... Colonel Jones of the of the of the army. My word, we had some adventures together in World War Two, didn't we, Indy? And Indy goes, "Yes, we did. God, they were great." And is that only because it's Jim Robinson? Well, partially <laughs> that. I want to see Jim Robinson and Harrison Ford just just doing anything, hanging out. That would be great. But an actual and Helen Daniels walks in. Helen Daniels walks in. <laughs> then Jim has a heart attack, and it all goes wrong. Bouncer comes in. Um, but wouldn't you like to see that? You know, Indy probably in World War Two, properly fighting the Nazis. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah, that's that'd be great. Good. Instead yeah. of what we got. Which was which, which which was fine, Ian. Which was good. It was good. Moving on, quick, quick. Complete Spielberg Volume Two uh, <laughs> out soon. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via Twitter, uh, where we're at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast. You can Facebook us, or you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. Do jump in. Don't be shy. Now, uh, Ben Wheatley's brilliant comedy Sightseers opened well at the UK box office over the weekend. If you haven't seen it, do climb into your nearest touring caravan, head down to your local cinema and rectify that immediately. Its writers and stars, Steve Orham and Alice Lowe, popped into the pod booth this week to talk about the movie, their work together and awful sweaters. They were talking to myself and Phil DeSemlian. Steve, Alice, welcome to the show. Hey. Congratulations, guys, on uh, on a, a bumper a weekend at the box oh, office. Yeah, 230,000, I think it was. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> and how yeah. much of that goes directly to you? Uh, <laughs> uh, all of it, yeah. <laughs> We've got it out in cash. And we're, <laughs> We've got we're going out tonight. Now. Uh, well, I don't know yet. Okay. Uh, not much, I imagine. But. Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Just the joy of having participated. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a cracking weekend as well because you've yeah. got the, the, the biff is coming up. That's so right. uh, nominated for how many? I see seven, seven. Seven nominations for Sightseers, yeah. Um, yeah, in multiple categories, which is very exciting. Mm. Yeah, we're up against him, the best we're, we're best actor and actress nominated, and we're up against some astonishing people. Yeah. Um, General to- Zod. Who? <laughs> General Zod. Terence Stamp. Ter- yeah, Terence Stamp. I didn't really know what you meant there for a minute. <laughs> Judy Dench. Yeah. Tim Roth. That's not bad. Yeah, so yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty mad. Mad. It'd be disconcerting to be actually nominated against General Sword. Yeah, yeah. You might say Neil for me if you win. <laughs> you might fly onto the stage in a jumpsuit and sort of whack you around the face. <laughs> Send Fully you flying. That. I just thought if I ever got nominated, if I was ever so bold to dare that I would 
ever been nominated for something I used to joke that if I didn't win I would throw the table <laughs> so I'm going to do that oh, <laughs> no. be, yeah even if you haven't finished your dinner I'm going to throw <laughs> a table and go ah like that better eat my dinner quickly then put <laughs> 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 it on your lap <laughs> <laughs> like you're on a camping holiday I don't mind those little trays those little <laughs> nest of tables do you think they have them there at the breakfast? I think they do yeah, yeah you could request it yeah I think it's fully furnished by Ikea I believe probably yeah. <laughs> the whole thing no so doubt. do you have a, a, a speech a winning speech or a, or a losing rage in mind uh I don't know really, but try out some voices. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure. I mean, yeah, I suppose we should think about that, shouldn't we? The it, the, the rage, the stance. Everyone's going to be looking at us, right? Do, do you give Are a speech they? if you don't win? Yeah, I think you should. <laughs> Everyone does. Just stand up on the well, table. Well, if, if you planned one, you might as well do it. Just storm the Just stage. Just change the vibe of it a bit. <laughs> Yeah. Stand aside, sword. <laughs> Shut up! This is my time, my time. But um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a heady time because it's a year, just a year has passed since you guys were filming yeah. side series. Um, and you you've been working on these characters for for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, have they been now completely put to bed for you? Is is it for for Chris and Tina? I think. Yeah. Pro- probably. Yeah. I think they kind of have to be, don't they? Yeah. Mm. I think when you do TV comedy, it's tempting to keep resurrecting those characters. But when you've made a film, and you're really happy with the ending and stuff, you kind of you don't want to dilute it by coming back again and again having said that you know 15 years <laughs> yeah, time when we're doing Sightseers 3 we'll be like all those 80s <laughs> those 80s bands that are re- going doing reunion tours now yeah. Yeah. Sightseers 3 the Sightseers road to 3. nowhere that's <laughs> things right. like that Wales <laughs> Conway yes. Castle so how long did it take to get this this movie off the ground for you? Were you, were you always thinking of uh, one day bringing Chris and Tina to the big screen? Or? Well, I think in our wildest dreams, we mm, kind of yeah. thought that we'd make a movie. I think most actors would like to be in a movie and most writer-performers probably, you know, the holy grail would be making a film. Mm. But, um, you know, when we were first doing the characters, you know, we it wasn't our intention necessarily yeah, it was, to make you a just, film you just start doing stuff we just started doing it as live characters and then it was it, it, you know you don't really think beyond that until you, and then we we took we did it live on stage and we took it to TV company and developed it there and so it was just all sort of focused on the next little task and things just kind of happened when we did it on they? stage though there were quite a few people coming up to us and going what are you doing with that that's got legs that idea what is it and, mm. you know so I think we sort of knew that there was potentially depth to their story that was more than we could just get across in a stage thing you know I mean we had um, the idea for the the whole the sketch was the idea for the film and that's mm, what you see basically isn't it yeah that joke I suppose just that joke stretched out to an hour and a half (laughs) (laughs) that was a post quote (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) one joke 90 minutes one joke 90 minutes well done guys No, but it's an, I mean, obviously, um, it's an awful, awful lot more than that. And, and Edgar Wright was kind of instrumental in the process, wasn't he? And I, I kind of yeah. wondered how much, apart from sort of the mechanics of getting the film made, how much of his sort of sensibility went into it? And, and was he involved creatively in the process too? Or was it very much all... He, he was, but in a very like, I'm going to draw another Superman analogy. Yeah. It was like when it. we needed him, we would go to a, the Crystal Cave. Yeah. He, like Marlon Brando, would say like a pronouncement and we'd go, thank you. 
Yeah. With his face, and his giant face would appear on the wall. Yeah. That's right. He was My always son. there. You could call him up whenever you yeah, need. I mean, it, it was just the perfect involvement, actually, because he sort of really understood that it was our baby. And then once Ben got involved, he understood that yeah. it was Ben's baby as well. And so he, he wouldn't ever want to impose anything creatively. But at the same time, his notes were just so spot on and would always just cut to the heart of what we needed to do but obviously sometimes they were just really quite spare you know you just say one or two things and you go god yeah, yeah that is what we need to do there's a question obviously about authorship because these are characters you guys created you wrote the film you're in the film mm. uh, I saw you do a lot of improvisation on set as well but it also feels very much like a Ben Wheatley movie so yeah. Yeah. at what point do you let go of something that is so much yours and, and give it over to this guy I think it's once we started yeah, you know, we had a period once it was of green lit, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah, at that it was probably the summer before we started shooting, which was in we shot in October. Mm. Yeah, and that, that was that was the point where we were just, you know, getting the money together, and it was all kind of happening, and so it became a reality. So Ben had to take ownership, and you know, he needed to do that, I think, as a director. I think Especially do, once we you? started acting as well, because you don't really want to be thinking too much about everything else the props and yeah. the, you know whatever <laughs> mm. you can be too control freaky about it so it's actually really I think that was a point where we properly handed over yeah. and went we're just actors now in this we're environment and, and that just is the best that's the best way to work though because you feel this, you can play then you're not being like a grown up but sometimes I feel like a director is like a parent <laughs> they're kind of like you yeah. know they're going come on kids come on in the car you know and then you're like a kid mucking around and especially in comedy it's really important you have that playfulness and if you're too much like thinking about what you're doing it's it's going to show on screen basically but, but ben, Ben's approach was to you know was was very you're very hands off with what we were doing with the characters, especially you know when, when we were acting. He was just kind of going, "We'll just do it." You know, you've done this for seven years, and so, especially with the looseness of the way we worked, so it was, it was you know, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a painful thing for us no. at very all. Organic, yeah, sort of it felt collaborative. You know, he yeah, he wasn't sort of sitting there shouting, "Just do it different, <laughs> you idiots!" <laughs> like that, but different. Like that, but different. Yeah, but I mean, usually you guys had location scouts, don't you? Because you've done your your sort of your own yeah. camper van method preparation <laughs> to, these, to these so you must have arrived and I guess Ben had seen these locations before as well obviously yeah, yeah. Um, did you have start to visualise how scenes might play out when you were doing Absolutely. that I think yeah. definitely yeah I mean we also had this sort of vague idea that we wanted the film to start off that you think you're watching a certain type of comedy mm. and then it opens out and gets sort of much more theatrical in the sort of you know very epic big scale sort of way and we wanted the landscape to echo that so we sort of started off more in Derbyshire where we knew we were going to be seeing little middle little model trains and stuff like that and then going to the Peak District where suddenly we were in this bleak passes and <laughs> with all this slate and dark colours and moody skies and stuff like that so we kind of you know we, we really thought you can't write a story about British tourism without really really Using the actual immersing landscape yourself, and yeah, using immersing the yourself sites. in trams, uh, <laughs> everything that's around you, because it's 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 really astonishing when you kind of go when you go travelling in Britain. There's you know every twenty miles there's just an amazing attraction, almost anywhere in the country, mm. um, you know. And it, so that was that it was this amazing route. The, 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 you can actually do the route if you wanted to. The sightseers route. On the, <laughs> it, it, started, it, yeah. it helped us to open up the film you know when we were in these quite mystical places like a stone circle or whatever we suddenly went 
this film could have something more to it. Do you could know have what I mean? Elves it, in it. Could have pixies. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no, that's a rubbish idea. <laughs> Did we joke about that at one point Probably. that we might just at the end go? There's a pixie, and that's the end. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a pixie. The end. Was the it's ending. just looking at a pixie. Yeah, a bit disappointing. <gasps> Pixies are real. The end. <laughs> More films should end that way. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. Have, you, have you guys had any feedback from not just museums that you used in the film? I mean, the Pencil Museum has gone nuts. From what I understand, people are you know always talking about it. Yeah, yeah. that's the one that people latch onto most. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. And good and good 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 for them as well. You know. I, I think hope. it's pretty popular already. The pencils. Yeah, it, it was is, quite yeah. busy when we went there. Um, Cumberland pencils, I mean. But Crike Tramway Museum is amazing, and more people should visit that. Cause, and I hope that's been a bit sort of promoted by the film that people <laughs> yeah. go, oh, it's sort of run that? by volunteers like, who, you know, yeah. lovingly sort of keep the maintain this place. And uh, yeah, we'll see. It, it depends how the murdering aspect <laughs> is taken, but it's, you know, everyone we've spoken to has really liked like the film, and it's you know. You can follow Crike Tramway Museum on the uh, on Twitter, which is it's nice. Yeah. It really made me laugh the other day. I actually retweeted it. It said, "It's a cold but sunny day. Why not drop into the tea room?" <laughs> and I just thought there's something funny about Tina then retweeting that. It suddenly makes it sinister. A serial so killer. I was like, yeah, I'll yeah. retweet that. <laughs> it's like the, like the tea room in Widnell and I, I guess. Yeah, people yeah. are always trying to trying to go along there. I'm and were you sort of joking about the National Trust taking on this movie as a kind of? <laughs> 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 they kind of could if they had a sense of humour about it. They yeah. haven't. We haven't had word yet from I, them. Have well, we? <laughs> we, I did, did we use any National Trust? I don't think we did. It was quite expensive. To yeah. British tourism. National Trust. Yeah, it was too. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know they should. They should embrace it, I, I think. Mean, Why if, not? If they want to get involved, you know, give us a ring. <laughs> we'll, come and, we'll come and visit any of their places and... Yeah. <laughs> and murder people in them. <laughs> <laughs> and we can film it. And what about the caravan community? Any any feedback from... They from really like it. Yeah. They, they, we've had a really nice review from Caravan and Motorhome. Lovely. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah, they sort of took it in a really way, good spirit. sort of... Uh, you know, it kind of makes you think there's extra dimensions to caravanners that you might not have known before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I think they it's, quite uh, like it. Yeah. A bit of danger. And there are enough normal caravanners <laughs> in the movie to, yeah. Yeah. to offset Chris and Tina as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. That's true. But yeah. presumably Chris Tookie's not a caravanner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. We were sort of waiting with bated breath. I thought, if he gives the site three stars, that'll just not do. That will not yeah. do. It's got to be either a brilliant review or a really terrible one. And he sort of, he, he really delivered. <laughs> I was laughing so much when I read it because it was the fact he actually quoted the Daily Did Mail he? line. That was the last thing he said. As a, and yeah. to top insult to injury... They also <laughs> denigrated Daily Mail readers. It's very, yeah. It was very indignant and it was very funny. Oh, so I think it's great. We were kind of, I think even like years ago when we were writing it, we were like going, what are, what are the, what the <laughs> Daily Mail make of this? Like, yeah. they're, they're yeah. surely going to, we were sort of going, you know, we will have failed if we haven't offended them. Well, I, I heard a story that uh, one of the very first screenings, Baz Bammy Boy was there, mm. and he roared with laughter at the Daily Mail line. So clearly yeah. there's not a, there's no Daily Mail party line. It's not like, oh, this is outrageous. No. But, uh, but poor old Tookie, he doesn't, he didn't he didn't no. get it. Oh, well. We've got to let you guys, uh, you guys go now, but I just wanted to ask a couple of very, very quick last things. I mean, uh, this again goes back to the sort of 
authorship question about the film but it's incredibly gory was that something that you always intended uh, that you intended or was that something um, that Ben brought I think probably a legacy of having written it for TV or thinking about it as a TV thing initially you get used to kind of doing sleight of hand jokes where it's like oh and that person has just died but you didn't see it do you know yeah. what I mean and it's, it's the joke is almost that and I think the script was much more like that and I think we had like one really really gory murder at the end which was kind of like going to be our sort of final piece of like this, now you're really going to see it and Ben was like I think we should just see it all yeah, you know just, which is his trademark went you know? with it he ran with it yeah Ran with it, took the, took the arm, took the head, <laughs> took the stick, <laughs> stayed on it for 20 minutes. Guy. <laughs> a, a team of prosthetics, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Special effects, and uh, he, he had amazing fun doing that, I think, yeah. Ben. Yeah. Probably more and, fun than working with us also, as actors. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting because it's kind of what we sort of said about morally, you do want to challenge the film, you do want to challenge the film audience, you want yeah. to kind of go. It is called Sightseers. It is about you're witnessing this as well. You're watching this and you're enjoying it and trying to be true to that. Mm. You know, it wouldn't have been that great if you hadn't actually seen the sights. Uh, Got to see the sights. And you see it through Tina's eyes as well. It's like, you know, that's your way into the film and she is witnessing these things and and enjoying it. So you need to see what she sees, really. Absolutely. And then the last thing is with Christmas coming up. Yeah. Uh, is there going to be a sightseer's Christmas card? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> or a Christmas special? <laughs> it's Christmas special. Wow, that'd be brilliant. Murdering in Santa hats yeah. around the Christmas tree. We can do a song. Nativity, like of Power of Love, you know, like the video of Power of Love. Chris and Tina, maybe Tina's pregnant on a donkey. No, yeah. Or a carapod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would actually be the sequel, would be the son of Chris, because Tina could be pregnant. That's yeah, actually that's what true, it would actually, be. Yeah. Well, yeah. Phil, we've been we've been present at the uh, the, the the birth of Side Series Two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the road to hell. The road to hell. <laughs> yeah. With elves. With elves. <laughs> Definitely want elves in it. Oh my god, oh, uh, terrifying. <laughs> guys, it's been a, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for coming in, uh, Steve. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Anytime, anytime at all. Thank you. Okay, movie news time now. Helen, what have you got? Uh, well, first up, I'd very quickly like to mention uh, our regular Star Wars update. Okay. Update is... There is <laughs> thank you. There is no big Star Wars news <laughs> this week. Um, but we did hear a tiny tidbit of related news, which is that Colin Trevorrow, the, the sci-fi geek-loved property that he's planning not to mess up, is apparently Flight of the Navigator. Okay, is Not this beloved? Episode seven. Well, he says so, so let's just <laughs> um, So I just wanted to mention that quickly. But my real news story is the fact that a script has been commissioned for a Pacific Rim sequel. Dun, 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 dun. Not a Pacific Rim, that's as we conf- know, is that's not confident, even... It, it is confident, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, it's uh, it's not even out yet. And uh, Travis Beecham, who of course wrote the original Pacific Rim uh, script, has been commissioned to do a follow-up. So that is intriguing stuff. What does this mean? I think it means that they're feeling pretty good about what they've got. And, uh, and hopefully it means that we're in for some more giant monsters versus giant robots in the future. And is Del Toro attached to that? Well, we don't know that yet. I think it'll depend on how the script turns out. And of course, he's just been announced this week as having his um, Crimson... Crimson... Mountains, Peak. Crimson, Crimson Peak, Crimson Peak uh, which is now in, also in development, and of course he has a to-do list about six miles long. Crimson Peak, by the way, when that uh, was was announced as a go, they were also kind of hinting that he might get at the Mountains of Madness into development as well, or back into development as well. So his his dance card may be a little full for the foreseeable, but 
you know, we'll have to see if if it turn if the script turns out ace, it wouldn't surprise me if he decided to do it again. We'll have to see. He might squeeze a smaller one in first. You never know. Indeed. You never know. But uh, yeah, it'd be it'd be very interesting. It is bold. Very bold. It is bold. Mm. It's been it's been happening a few times recently. Obviously, the Amazing Spider-Man, the sequel was greenlit before. But the yes, first but you, one you do have out. obviously inbuilt brand recognition right. absolutely you do um, but you know I'm just saying it's happened in the past I think it, it does send you know it does kind of project a certain air of confidence whether that's entirely strategic and they have no confidence and just want to look like they do that would be the <laughs> really really cynical reading but I think from everything we've seen of that, that film that it's going to be pretty good fun we have no confidence announces legendary <laughs> pictures um, Ian what have you got uh, I've got a story about the uh, the most overpaid film stars in Hollywood which essentially at Forbes, which is a very prestigious American business magazine, are kind of calculated how much, on average, each star's last film has earned and how much sort of the return you get per dollar. Mm-hmm. So how much they got paid versus how much they come back in box office. So in reverse order, the 10th is Sarah Jessica Parker, Ben Stiller, Denzel Washington, Adam Sandler, Nicolas Cage. They're going into the top five. Okay, yeah. You have Jack Black, Sandra Bullock... Reese Witherspoon, Catherine Heigl, and according to Forbes magazine, the most overpaid star in Hollywood these days is Eddie Murphy. <laughs> uh, so for for his last three films, which are Imagine That, Tower Heist, and A Thousand Words, mm-hmm. they made $196 million. Uh-huh. And that means he has a return on his salary of an average of $2.30 at the box office. So for every dollar he was paid, the film made two dollars thirty. Wow. Well, no, that's this is an interesting list though because that seems like a list of people who were among the most profitable about three or four years ago. I think it's a little bit swings and roundabouts here because, like Catherine Heigl, for example, at yeah. one point was being paid what two, three million a film, and her yeah. films were consistently breaking a hundred million at the box office. So, so for every dollar she was paid in the last three movies, she earned three dollars forty. Yeah. Whereas I think if you go back a couple of years, you know, she was earning maybe I don't know five or ten dollars a movie per you know back as as a, as a thing on investment. So I think it might literally just be swings and roundabouts. Yeah, a and bit. that doesn't take into account Murphy's Shrek movies. Mm. The last Shrek. Oh, so they're just between. basically picking and choosing what they it might be yeah. what they want a little bit. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I'm not sure it swings and roundabouts because I don't think Catherine Heigl is going to get back to that point again. Okay, I swings and slides. I wouldn't write everyone yeah. off. Swings and slides. That. But how Snakes much is Adam Sandler <laughs> getting paid? Because the, those films seem to me to be very profitable. Well, look, isn't it something like twenty to twenty-five million per movie? Isn't that the? Yeah, he's in that ballpark. I think. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite a lot. But he's producing a lot of these movies with Billy with Billy Madison with Happy Madison. So surely this means that he's kind of getting paid through you know the profits of the film, not necessarily through a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, but doesn't this mean that the most profitable person or the most, uh, the most underpaid is probably somebody like Ken Young, who presumably gets paid very lot and the box office of these films is huge. Now, whether it's down to him or not is irrelevant, isn't I it? I would argue it's absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, but think- in terms of the, if you're doing that equation, he's in it and it's making that money and in terms of his salary, yeah, he's, that, that, he's huge, isn't he? Yeah, there was a... There was a- Having looked at these before, I don't think Forbes actually looks beyond the sort of the very top line stars. Right. Um, which is because otherwise you'd be entirely right. Yeah. Didn't we work out last year that the, the biggest star and the biggest highest grossing star in the box office in 2011, this was for our review of the year last year, was indeed Ken Jong. 
mm. because he's been in The Hangover Part 2 yeah. and Transformers mm. Dark of the Moon um, I think a lot of repeat business in, for Transformers 3 was people going to see him being pushed out of a window to his death <laughs> certainly I kept buying tickets <laughs> I don't know about you which is weird because he's, he's brilliant in the community but mm, I, 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 an acquired taste like the uh, like red wine and the music of Michael Nyman and the other thing I would say <laughs> uh, quoting a line from it <laughs> what, what was that from it was a, uh, this was a line from a review I wrote of uh, the best of Michael Nyman and the line went uh, uh, like uh, red wine and cunnilingus Michael Nyman is an acquired taste <laughs> and you you cut that you decided it not to go cut, with that it got cut yes. it got cut yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great lost line of, of not just Emperor Magazine but literature of literature yes yeah I that's stuck in my head that's stuck in my head for years now uh, anyway moving on swiftly uh, Ali I'm sorry I, <laughs> I don't know I don't know how to say this Skyfall you've heard of Skyfall, Skyfall. Yep. Crumble it has broken yet another record in the box office good lord it is now the UK's biggest movie ever there is no movie that's been released in the UK that has made more money in the box office than Skyfall how much has it made it is £94,277,602, which it hauled in in just 40 days. Comparatively, it is just ahead, at this point, of Avatar, which got £94 over 11 months, and that's with 3D ticket sales being inflated naturally. Uh, It's a huge achievement. It's extraordinary. I don't think think anybody really expected it to do this well. Uh, It means there's a lot of pressure on John Logan when he writes up the next two, which are going to be kind of sequels together. That's not a word, but anyway. Uh, comparatively, Quantum of Solace earned 591 million, and Casino Worldwide, Royale. Worldwide, that is. Worldwide. Mm-hmm. And Casino Royale earned 599 million. Skyfall is currently sitting pretty at 870 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. So, wow. why do we think this one has done so much better than, say, Casino Royale? Maybe the gap? The four year gap? The gap. I I'd, that. I'd suggest there's 50 years. Remind the 50 years celebration and all the, the hoopla around that reminded people, yeah, how yeah. much they loved it. Yeah, Britain's great year of Jube Olympics mm-hmm. kind of plays into I think, that. I think that's definitely played into it because it's done proportionately much better in this country than it has in the US. It's still done very well in the US, no question, but it's done proportionately much, much better here. Um, and uh, you know compared to anything we've really seen before and I think it is part of that whole yeah. whole hooray he was in the opening ceremony kind of dynamic so it's the uh, queen who did it right it's the uh, queen that did it I also think that, that Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins give it a kind of a, a credibility and a more maybe a, a more highbrow thing that a, a Guardian reader might feel less bothered about going to see a James Bond movie yeah. than, than yeah than they would have done. But I think when you get when you start getting to these kind of numbers, you're talking. You, it's because your mum's going, and it's because Absolutely. your granny's going, yeah. and it's because you know, as well as your little sister and your little brother, it, that's that's across the board kind of numbers. And I tell you what, I bet you they're going to keep it in cinemas for another what four or five weeks oh, until yeah. they get Easily. that extra six million pounds. It'll hit a million, and no it'll time. hit a hundred million. And it will over Christmas. It won't take that long. Yeah. It'll be probably yeah. this time two weeks at least. Uh, I think uh, busy people who haven't been able to go to the cinema, if they're going to pick any film to see over the Christmas period they won't go mm, I'll take a chance of Beast of the Southern Wild at its very last legs I'm going to go for Skyfall I think no amazingly I mean I, you know, I, I was on um, uh, a daily programme the other day and uh, that's, you know long a life's ambition was achieved you know the, the bit at the end of a news programme when they they fade up and you know the BBC breakfast when they fade up and you're sitting 
talking to the presenters as if you're actually talking to the presenters. What do you actually say? What do people say in that moment? What um, do people well, they said, say? they said, don't move, Chris, because you're still on camera because I was about to get up and walk off. And we started, just started talking about, about films. And so it was Louise Minchin and Charlie State. It was for BBC Breakfast. And we got talking about Skyfall. That's the B-list. That was it. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. That's not, that's very harsh on them. They were lovely. It's, um, not, it's not Susanna Reid, is it? It's not, it's not Bill Turnbull. <laughs> it's not, no. I, 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 was, I was hoping for a Bill, but it's Saturday. Uh, so we got oh, his butler yeah. to do oh, it. That's the A-list of Saturday. Definitely the A-list of Saturday. Um, so anyway, so, um, and uh, we just got talking about Skyfall. I was saying, oh, it's really, really good. Blah, 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 blah. And then Louise said, I haven't seen it. And I went, wow. So there's one person there's in one the UK. one person in the country. There's one person wow. in the UK who has not seen Skyfall. I think the other reason is uh, that we haven't mentioned yet is that it's got about, in my book, three huge spoilers or three huge plot twists, which you'll want to talk about with friends. And there's yeah. that frustration of, oh, but, oh, you haven't watched it. Oh. Yeah. I Go won't. see it quickly before we reveal that. Exactly. And when you have seen it, do come back and listen to our Skyfall spoiler special podcast and also the one with uh, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, the writers of Skyfall. There you go. How's that for brand synergy? Happy? So happy. Okay. Um, so uh, good news is, of course, that Skyfall has uh, so far, as you said, made 94 million quid, probably 95 or 96 by the time you listen to this, which means it's made more money at the UK box office than Avatar, Titanic, Toy Story 3, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, Mamma Mia, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the Chris, King, Chris, Lord it, of the Rings, The Two Towers, Chris, Star Wars Episode 1, what? It's, it's made more money than everything, ever. Oh, I mean, you're right. That's yeah. a really long list to read. That would probably take a bit, a bit long to do that. But uh, but anyway, let's move on swiftly. Thanks for your stories, guys. Uh, they brought warmth to my heart. Uh, now let's rush headlong. Headlong, I tell you, into another double-header interview. Warp Films has been consistently one of Britain's best and brightest production companies with the likes of Dead Man's Shoes, Four Lions and Tyrannosaur on a CV, which isn't bad at all. The Sheffield-based company is now celebrating its 10th birthday and Mary Burke and Mark Herbert, two of its bastions, popped in recently to blow out some candles. They were talking to me and, well, me, Charlie State and Louise Minchin were not available. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined in the Paul booth by Mark Herbert and Mary Burke of Warp Films, who are celebrating 10 years of, frankly, some of the best uh, British cinema has to offer, guys. I mean, 10 years. It's crazy. A decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a decade. I mean, well, you started off, because given how precarious the British film industry can be, did you think you'd make it to this point? Did you think you'd, you'd have 10 years under your belt? I thought we'd be lucky to make a feature. <laughs> right. One feature. Yeah. So... After Dead Man's Shoes, which was the first feature, I think um, it was kind of, and we were uh, we were so small as a company then that it was that typical producer hand to mouth. You like you make something, you finish that, you deliver it, you go to a festival, and it's finished, and you kind of go, oh, what do we do now? Mm. Ah, we've got nothing in, <laughs> we've got nothing in <laughs> development, and that was so. The fact that we actually made another film was. Um, that, that's just blown my head so 10 years is incredible yeah and Mary you started off as production assistant didn't you yeah totally yeah. I didn't even know what a producer or a director did for that matter so yeah thinking that is you do now hopefully. I do now <laughs> okay, sort of just, kind of I'm getting there but, um, <laughs> but yeah I never thought we'd I'd last 10 years <laughs> let alone 6 months so how did, you, how did this start off with you because uh, Mark you were involved right from the very beginning but yeah. and you were on Dead Man's Shoes. No, I came on my wrong. So you came on my wrong, so okay. Yeah, as a production assistant, so just working in the office, um, you know, sitting in a, a soundproof booth in the back of the Warp <laughs> Records office while we were shooting my wrongs with Chris Morris. So, uh-huh. yeah. And uh, at that time, because obviously we were up in Sheffield and still <clears throat> have, that's where I'm based, and we have an office up there, and it was, Mary was like kind of the, the, the person in the London office, you know, we had, uh, we shared one with Warp Records. Mm. And so it was literally, um, 
I mean, you'd, you'd come up and see me and Barry in the shed <laughs> now yeah. and again. But then, and I was down here, Salam. I mean, that time I'd come down normally on a Tuesday. Right. On the train, backpack, you know, uh, laptop in there. Right. And I'd just come down for three or four days and then go back on a Friday. And that was my sort of existence for the first few years of warp, just okay. sort of a lot of trains. Right. <laughs> a lot of trains, a lot of sleeping on sofas. A lot or, of sofas, yeah. yeah. The yeah. label manager, Kev, had a really dirty mattress that he used <laughs> to throw on the floor and, uh, and, a, and a, an old sleeping bag, which was about that, about half a mile from the warp records office. And then I just used to do the typical meetings in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and that was this was in the days when St Pancras had a non a, a whistle stop place where you could get pasties from, and it was just <laughs> the worst. Those late night trains back on your own after exhausting sort of like days in London. Uh, yeah, nursing a pasty on, the, uh, on the train back to Sheffield <laughs> and a warm lager. <laughs> <laughs> living the dream, my friend. Living the dream. So, what was the ethos? Of warp because uh, you know there seems to be a, 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 a guiding principle for all your all your films. I mean, there's, there's you know there's certainly a, a commitment to working with with new talent for one. For sure, Is that, yeah. Was that was that was that uh, something <coughs> I, the off? I mean, it, not the, at the beginning. The, the beginning it was interesting because it was actually it was Rob and Steve's brainchild, the founders of Warp Records, yeah. and they got some money from Nesta, and that was initially to kind of uh, utilize some of the distribution they got from records and distribute short films was one of them make short films and distribute them and after the success of Come to Daddy and um, and that was the initial idea and then because sort of and then tragically Rob passed away and, mm. and um, it was during his wake actually when me and Steve were talking a lot and I decided to give up <laughs> what I was do- I was producing I just produced Phoenix Nights and decided to give up the an offer to do something else and and take the reins for a little bit and see what happened and I guess really it was about just the identifying talent and sticking with that talent. That was the ethos. It was really just going, Chris Morris, fantastic, Shane Meadows, Lynn Ramsey, all these Chris Cunningham people, let's mm. try and make, help them make whatever they're going to make, whether it's a short film or a feature. Mm. But really, when you, there was never a business plan at that stage. It was yeah. literally just come down, and if somebody bit in a meeting or you went to Cannes and somebody bit, then you're in there, you kind of you just go for it. So... After my wrongs, the fact that Film Four had changed and Tessa had taken over at Film Four, and sh- and I just met I met Shane Meadows via Paddy Considine, if you like. That was a real. There was no plan to make Shane's first feature uh, for Shane to be our first feature. It was just, it was very organic the way it get, came. And then, so you met Paddy through my my wrongs. My wrongs, yeah. yeah and then okay. he introduced me to Shane. Uh-huh. Um, and then that was. Uh, that was March in 2003, and in May we were shooting Dead Man's Shoes, so it was full on. <laughs> so I was going to say how important is is the creative side of things to you, and working with people and giving them their head, because if you look at the number of people who've worked with you, uh, you started off Chris Morris' first short film, and then his first film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so clearly there's trust from him towards you guys that you will let him have his head. Is that is that important to you to to do that we've always I mean that's been the number one thing and I think really initially actually going back to Dead Man's Shoes what came about that was watching these shorts that Paddy and Shane had done with Shane um, and seeing these incredible shorts that were just done as a sketchbook like an artist sketches to Paddy with a funny pair of teeth and a wig <laughs> going out for Shane and in one day making this great short so I remember saying to him why don't you do that how come you don't do that for the last features he went well it kind of got this much money and this much money and it was become really hard to kind of work organically and be able to change my mind and shoot and so well why shall we so Dead Man's Shoes came about from that and you know it was an amazing liberating experience that Shane said that was for him and it was great for us and then we've tried to replicate that process on all the films so whether you know 
we're, filmmakers have very different methods of working mm. but we don't see that we're, we're here to advise and if they trust us and we build the trust so that our creative thoughts mean something but we're not overly we don't yeah. overly produce we don't say you must change this scene because this doesn't work it kind of you find it we're, together and we're trying to make the film that they want to make so you know if I, if I were directing the films they'd all just be like PB's Big Adventure you know <laughs> I, would, I would be making Barbarian Sound Studio that's for sure but um, yeah so it's just trying to put them on the path that's the you know best film mm. that they're trying to create and that's especially true with the first time directors yeah. I think because you know teaching them a bit about how people perceive the film that they're cutting or how audiences might receive it. So are you finding that people are gravitating now towards you, beating the path towards Warp Store and because you're more receptive? It's, it's a little bit easier um, to find the talent and to get the talent. There's always three or four people, if somebody's good, trying to work with that person. And like I say, we never handcuff anyone into a deal. We never, you know, I'm really pleased that people like Justin, who made Snowtown, mm. you know, has gone off is going off to do a huge film next mm. because I know I'm seeing him later you know I know that when he's done that <laughs> he'll come and do one with us and right. I think that's the kind of that's always been our principle and we do looking back over the 10 years and looking back at the event we do try and make it fun it's a tough industry and you get a lot of knockbacks and a, he a hell of a lot of no's you know in fact, I'd say 99% of meetings in the early years was somebody saying no or laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> a comedy about suicide bombers. <laughs> um, but, but then, but in in order, and it's really tough, and you know, um, a lot of work, and you're away from your family a lot, and you're really busy. But we do try and have a laugh doing it, and mm. make sure that it is a laugh, and make sure it is not taken too seriously because people take it so seriously. This mm. industry exactly. and the subject matter, you know, the war films have tackled in the past. There have been comedies, but you can go to some pretty dark and gritty places so yes. it's important that the office isn't, isn't. <laughs> yeah we're not all depressed a dark place yeah. yeah we're not all shaving our heads and like you know <laughs> pissing on each other in the office <laughs> That's I, should, really. I should hope not <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we did that in Sheffield every Friday <laughs> um, better talk to Robert three about that yeah. Yeah, time <laughs> for the office piss, piss on, yeah. <laughs> but no I mean it was it was weird because it was uh, I, I remember I, I was at the Sydney Film Festival last year I was on kind on the jury but we also had Warp had Snowtown released at the time we had Tyrannosaur and we had Kill List there was This Is England 86 showing as part of this other thing and um, and also there's, you know we're looking at films that we've done and I just realised that nearly in, in all of the films that were currently in Sydney at the time there was animals slaughtered and um, and then somebody turned around and said oh Four Lions was uh, was did really well in competition at Sydney last year and you blew up a sheep in that so I had to say <laughs> I've, I've got a dog and a cat um, <laughs> And I love animals, and but there, apparently there are a lot of animals killed in our films, often right. violently. <laughs> but that's uh, that's you know not, not a conscious thing. You're no, just, not conscious. That's, that's what you're claiming now, anyways. I love. I'd, I'd, I'd probably do it to my cat. I don't really like. But, uh, no, I do love animals. We're gonna get picked up by Peta now, or yeah. You the only thing I think I've ever killed in one of my films is vegetables. We've just had a lot of vegetables, a lot of cabbages. That's about it. I mean, last year you talked about last year. I mean, that was an amazing year for you guys. Oh, you had yeah. uh, Tyrannosaurus, Submarine, Kill List. That was that was yeah. that was, Snowtown. That was yeah. Snowtown indeed. This that is was England eighty six. Uh, yeah, yeah, dominating the TV screens. Yeah, totally so, crazy. Yeah, Warp Nine was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. Everyone thinks that. I mean, the, the mad thing is that a lot of those things, the gestation of those projects came very like years and years ago. Hmm. It just that we suddenly hit this momentum, and it was that biggest nightmare when I remember. I remember sort of when we were doing I remember being on set and submarine and like we were still doing stuff on Four Lions and This Is England 86 was about and there was just 
I mean, it was chaos. You know, it really was. You sort of like the only minutes piece was on a train and then you just do your emails and something. So it was full on. I'd never, ever want to go back to a year nine again, (laughs) (laughs) personally. I mean, it was successful in terms of it being how it was perceived, but gosh, it was full on. Yeah, and it was it was creatively successful. Obviously, I mean, you know, you know, Tarantino was one of my favorite films last year. It just it blew me away. But um, you know, is there a pressure to make sure that you deliver commercially as well, or uh, how do you? Does that really bother you that much? It, it has to. I mean, you have mm. to. I'm not one of these people who says you know believe that however dark your subject matter is, it has to know who its audience is. Yeah, not just making it. And I think that. Um, and it's just about being realistic with that. So if you're making a film like Tyrannosaur, it's gonna, you know, it's not gonna go be a commercial blockbuster. But at the same time, with a good, decent distributor that which it had and the right push which it had, it can really punch above its weight. Yeah. And I think that's what we try and make the filmmakers aware of. And I'm a big Dead Man's Shoes again. Didn't do great at the box office. We we're up against Saw and Layer Cake the same weekend. It kind of died a little bit, but oh, really? it, it kind of got great reviews. Did okay. But then Optimum did such a great job on DVD and built and built and built that it's still selling now. So I think I think it's just about being realistic with what our ambition is and the ambition for the film. And it's like always with... with any, even the Snowtown came out of a workshop we did in Melbourne. And I remember saying to the writers in the first day, OK, right, we're not going to get into the story today, just tell me what the poster is. And it's amazing how a lot of people who are starting these ideas off have no concept of what the poster might be. Really? Yeah. So, even, so we try and make that you process... Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's important that you're thinking about who's going to watch it in three, four, ten yeah. years' time when it's made, finally. Yeah, it's about the longevity of the titles, because sometimes you can make something that does really well at the box office, but then in three years you don't even remember what the, the film was. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think the same is true to say something like Barbarian Sound Studio, which yeah. managed to find an audience even though it is, like, the weirdest subject <laughs> matter ever. Like, who's going to go watch a film about a Foley artist? It's just stupid. Why did you guys do that? But anyway, you know, because it has such an amazing kind of package... Yeah. You know, it's got broadcasting the music, which is, you know, one of the most seminal bands on Warp. I think mm. that we create an audience, even if there seems like on paper there won't be one. Guys, it's been a pleasure. I could talk to you all day. There's loads of films we haven't even talked about, but hopefully you'll come back in again another time. Thanks, no Chris. No problem. Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Time for the week's movie reviews now. It's a good week for the number of releases, with companies desperate to get out there before The Hobbit hits next week. But is it a good week for releases? Full stop. Let's find out. The first movie up for discussion is Seven Psychopaths, Martin McDonough's follow-up to the brilliant In Bruges. Like that movie, this is a violent and terribly sweary comedy thriller starring Colin Farrell, but there are the comparisons end. This is a glossier affair starring Farrell as an Irish writer called Marty, who, while working on a script called Seven Psychopaths, gets involved with a group of actual psychopaths. Thoughts, Helen. Hello. I'll come to you. Okay. Um. This. Yeah. This one has somewhat divided opinion. I think a little bit around the place. Um. People who go in expecting something as kind of, as in some ways weighty and and uh kind of twisty in a strange way as in Bruges have been disappointed but people who just go in and kind of watch it I think have generally enjoyed it very much Um, it's kind of a shaggy dog story uh, quite literally in that it involves a shaggy dog that gets kidnapped at one point by Sam Rockwell and Christopher Walken who operate a sort of business of kidnapping dogs and then living on the rewards and things go a bit wrong for them when they kidnap the dog belonging to Woody Harrelson who is of course a gangster in this and he's determined to get his dog back even if that means human lives oops (laughs) 
Um, and then it, this all ties in with uh, Colin Farrell's Marty. One has to suspect he's named after Martin McDonough. He's what? trying to. I know, right? Crazy. He's trying to write this this film called Seven Psychopaths, and uh, Sam Rockwell plays his best friend, and uh, he kind of gets sucked into the whole affair. And it's a sort of a rambling kind of weird little story filled with tangents people go off and there's little flashbacks and little other stories being told along the way you know you've got uh, Tom Waits in there you've got a whole backstory involving uh, the Harry Dean Stanton figure you've got all of these little kind of interesting stories that people tell Marty along the way and he's trying to kind of weave together into some kind of script and uh, as well as a little bit of commentary on Hollywood and a little bit of discussion of why we watch movies and how we watch movies and kind of whether we're doing it right in some ways but you don't have to really pay attention to any of that because it's just it's hilarious it's very very funny as it goes and uh, and very entertaining on its own merits it's got Walken doing full Walken as well isn't it really it? does it's really really over the top Walken you know performance yeah and they're to be valued these days you don't see them often enough do you no I think he's fantastic in this film and I think Sam Rockwell is is just brilliant it's his feisty incendiary um, just nut job who's constantly going off on one he has a great speech uh, when they go out to the Joshua Tree uh, mm-hmm. in the third act, and he has this great speech about a movie he would like to see because he's trying to write a movie in real life. He's trying to make this this movie happen. And honestly, I, I you know I think that when they come to start tallying tallying up the uh, supporting actor nominations uh, this year, I think those guys are getting overlooked at the moment. And I yeah. think they're exactly the sort of fun, feisty supporting performances that normally. Uh, Hollywood quite likes and it's a bit of a shame because I think I think yeah, both Rockwell and Walken are, are very deserving and Colin Farrell gives it a great centre as this uh, a drunk Irish writer who gets constantly appalled by the violence that's happening around him yeah, yeah but in a slightly ineffectual way he's not he's not sort of oh he's very passive he's very passive and, and, and very kind of disapproving but not the extent of really doing anything about it he's, he's kind of uh, I think he, he's a very kind of uh, what's the word self-puncturing view of the writer from Madonna. I found it very funny I think I want to underline that again I I walked out greatly amused, there was a big smile on my face, I was aware that it kind of eats its own tail at times, it's kind of meta I think is that overused word but it is, it it discusses what it is to be a, a thriller or a revenge thriller and tries to live that out at the same time. But as you say, with these bits and bobs that are kind of tacked on, it sometimes feels a little disjointed and um, a little lumpy. I personally love this kind of stuff. I love this kind of self-aware comedy, sharp quips every other sentence, um, and quite bleak. So I was really into it. Um, Some of my friends who I thought would love it have, as you said, you know, it's been quite divisive. They've said, oh, that's just not what I was expecting at all. So... Just be aware of that before you walk in. If you want a carbon copy of In Bruges, go and watch In Bruges. Uh, <laughs> this is a different film. Just generally go and watch In Bruges. It's terrific. Yeah, do so. But I, I think this is a great. This would make a great double bill with In Bruges. Actually, it's much. It's lighter, although it does have a lot of darkness in its in its soul. But I honestly am a little baffled by the the hate that's been levelled towards it by certain members of the. The London Critterati, as I believe they're now dubbing themselves. Oh, please, let's not. Yeah, it's weird, because then you start doing that, and you need to start getting the political wings and paramilitary organisations, and it just gets wrong. You and I just don't approve of that kind I of just, thing, I, do we, Chris? I, no, I, I'm, I'm fully opposed to that yeah. sort of stuff. And I, I'm a little baffled, because it's it's really well acted, it's good fun, it's got a fantastic dialogue, and yes, it, it, it treads the same ground as adaptation, but is that a reason to hate a movie? And to, Maybe it's just Martin McDonough's time, who knows? But anyway, we gave that four stars. Yep, Kim so we're, we're fully behind the Kim Newman, and uh, so go and check it out. Of course, it's already opened. It opened on Wednesday, and if you haven't seen it, do go and check it out. Uh, next up is A Man with the Iron Fists, a kung fu actioner listening in Shrieking Affair. 
given Ooh. as produced by Eli Roth, grandfathered by Quentin Tarantino, and features Russell Crowe as a villain named Jack Knife. Can't believe that name has never been used before in a movie, actually. <laughs> uh, and it stars, is written and directed by. Now, am I, am I, am I pronouncing this right? Mr. Rizza? <laughs> I love that you're looking at me. Yeah, <laughs> well, the well, most the, street person well, in the room. I believe it's the Rizza. The Rizza. Rizza yeah. Mr. Le Rizza. Mr. No, Rizza. No, no, oh, no, yeah, no, 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 Mr. Okay, so yeah, I know that, but yeah, I'm just being formal. Oh, oh I see. He, he deserves it. Uh, Rizza, formerly of the Wu Tang Clan, perhaps still of the Wu Tang Clan. I don't know these things. Anyway, um, and he's now a big shot movie director. Mm. This is uh, his idea. He originated it. Uh, and what are our thoughts on this? I'm going to come to you, Ali Plum. Yes, as you might have expected, with all the names you've just listed, Eli Roth, Quentin Tarantino, this is all about people who shake hands and decide that peace is the right thing to do. No, it's about <laughs> it's about a lot of blood and punching and death and killing and whatnot. And uh, if you're into that sort of thing, then yeah, look on, forward on to some... those terms, I think it yeah. works well. Yeah, yeah, on those terms. Yeah. So if you're looking forward to you know well-crafted fight choreography, quids in. If you're looking forward to nuanced dialogue. Mm. I want to know how Russell Crowe ended up in it. <laughs> I believe he. Uh, what's been really fun to watch is uh, this sort of love affair between him and Eli Roth that's unfolded on Twitter as a result of them working together in this, where they're constantly, you know, like busting each other's balls. And in fact, there was a, a, a someone tried to stir up a controversy, didn't they, a few months ago because um, Russell Crowe said something about Eli Roth being Jewish, and it was just a joke between two friends busting each other's balls as happens between two friends and some people went how dare you say that sir getting outraged on Eli Roth's behalf whereas Eli Roth was just like well no this is my my mate and we're just having a lark so <laughs> back off so that's been nice to see that's been good mm. I, yeah I wonder how he how he how he got the script but yeah it's 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 fun I think we said in the not the review but we said in the news story that's in this month's edition of Empire that it out Grindhouse's Grindhouse <laughs> That's a recommendation. That's a recommendation, absolutely. Yeah, it's completely so. mental, this movie. Uh, and so Arissa stars as a blacksmith. He is the man with the iron fists, and there's a whole cadre of villains come to his his village. It's certainly uh, 18th century. And he has to fend them off with his, his kung fu ways. And his brothel owner is the polite way of saying it. Lucy Liu, who also prods buttock in a variety of inventive ways. Amazing. Mm. Yes, so three stars. That's right which pretty much does our grand house grand house in that case so uh, that's a recommendation we can't say that enough go and go and check it out uh, next up is a much smaller affair it's I Anna starring Charlotte Rampling and Gabriel Byrne and I believe Ali am I right in this it's directed by Charlotte Rampling's son that is correct hey good hey there you go there you go you can learn things off the internet tell us tell us about this then please yes the name of uh, Charlotte Rampling's son is Barnaby Southcombe uh, so that's why it may not be obvious at first glance whether they are mother and son yeah so the two stars are Gabriel Byrne and Charlotte Rampling I had the great pleasure of interviewing Charlotte Rampling for this film and it really was an honour because you know she's Charlotte Rampling <laughs> um, but yes uh, she plays this 66 year old slightly lonely I think it's fair enough to say uh, woman but very beautiful woman uh, who is looking for love she's looking for something in her life so she goes to uh, singles nights and finds a man who she thinks she likes she's a bit nervous uh, she goes she goes back to his place and things get rather tense she wakes up the next morning uh, leaves his house with her shoes in her hand uh, and a broken wrist um, and she can't really remember what's what's happened um, now the, de uh, the detective who's investigating the murder of the man who was with her <gasps> is Gabriel Byrne and she he's obviously looking to put the pieces together but he's entranced by her there's something about her that's quite peculiar or something that really obviously appeals to him and so he uh, decides to go to other single nights that she's going to and makes friends with her 
with a view to a smooch and so things get a little bit complicated you've also got Eddie Marson who's always brilliant as his lieutenant in the uh, cop shop and you've also got Hayley Atwell who plays Charlotte mm-hmm. Rampling's daughter mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, with Balakins and they look after the little wee baby it is a neo-noir uh, it's very kind of very beautifully shot it's a, it's a joy to watch London look like this they've really taken uh, the London skyline they use a lot of Barbican Centre as well uh, to kind of to set it and it's just lovely to watch it, I feel at times that it was quite slight I felt mm-hmm. I thought it could be and this this sounds pretty damning but I don't mean it that way it could have been a very very good uh, TV drama uh, but that's just because of its plot not because of either the acting uh, or the script um, so if you're intrigued by this I would I would try and hunt it down it's perhaps one for a DVD uh, if mm-hmm. you can't necessarily you know if you have to go two towns over don't worry um, <laughs> but it is a beautiful to see film and kind of quietly affecting so if you enjoy either of these two's work see if you can find it go see the four stars for I Anna let's round off the reviews with Celeste and Jesse Forever which is a Sundance friendly rom-com that did well at the festival last year it features Andy Samberg and Rashida Jones as a couple who may or may not be made for each other or not or not or or yes or whatever so that gets two stars sadly that didn't uh, that didn't float our boat Hugh Laurie and Leighton Meester who uh, shared a flirtation their character shared a flirtation <gasps> on, a, on a, a mini arc of House MD they're reunited and this time that flirtation gets serious uh, not the same characters obviously in uh, the dark domestic comedy The Oranges Pete Doherty gives acting a shot and turns out to be just as good a dad as he was at music and confessions of a child of a century. Yeah, he plays a libertine and he can't even do that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> a libertine. Anyone who's listened to the Libertines album would know that he, he couldn't do that either. And newcomer director Alex West tells us life just is, and that gets three stars. And Miley Cyrus, bless her, is an undercover FBI agent and so undercover, which the title actually features the words so over which is what Miley Cyrus' movie career so is. Damning. Two stars. Oh, no. So damning. Two, two stars for that one. Wow. So, so there you go. And uh, one last thing before we go, we've got one more interview to see us at the Dark Winter Nights. We've already given Seven Psychopaths a glowing review, so I'm delighted to tell you that Martin McDonough and Sam Rockwell popped in recently to have a chat about the film and its myriad layers, and they were talking to Helen. Hello. And Ali. Hi. We have with us today Sam Rockwell. Hey, how's it going? And Martin McDonough. Hello. Um, to talk about Seven Psychopaths, which we enjoyed very much. Oh, cool. Thank you. Thanks a lot. We, we enjoyed it too. <laughs> One would hope. Not I watching mean. it, just making it. Right. <laughs> no, we enjoy watching it too. So, I mean, you know, the the film is one that, Martin, you've been sort of sitting on for, for a few years. You wrote it before In Bruges. Um, yeah, it was written it, just after writing the script of In Bruges, but before I'd made In Bruges, and I kind of had both of them ready to go, but I thought uh, In Bruges was more... Um, uh, it had elements that I, I was used to in, in theatre, so I thought as a first uh, script that was the best thing to do and not screw up completely. So, uh, you know, because it's three characters and it's one town. And this had a much larger canvas, a much larger cast of characters. It had flashbacks and stories within stories. Uh, so I thought I, I didn't have the wherewithal, wherewithal at the time to uh, to jump in as a first feature. After four years, it was about time to get off my arse and, uh, and, and do it. <laughs> You hadn't been completely on your arse in the meantime, right? Because you'd done a play together. Yes, yes. I wrote a play in, in the interim, actually on my arse. And um, <laughs> uh, and Sam and Christopher Walken did it uh, with me in New York about three or four years ago. Um, so we got to know each other. We, we knew each other a little bit before that, Sam and I. 
but got to know each other very well uh, artistically especially yeah. in that period and that's when we first talked about doing uh, this together and you also weren't actually allowed to say no because you'd already worked together <laughs> I think he was still the, in the place so he'd have been fired if he uh, refused it <laughs> that's right that's right no it was just a, it was a great screenplay your character's called Billy Bickle, Sam. Yes, yes. And at one point, you talk to a mirror. Is that a coincidence that he happens to be called Billy Bickle and then points at a mirror? Sam. Um, there's a there's an homage, a little bit of an homage to uh, Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, uh, Johnny Boy and Mean Streets and Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver. I mean, uh, Martin and I talked about that a little bit. Yeah, there was, there was a little more in the original script uh, about uh, Billy's backstory and the links he thinks he has with Travis Bickle, which are kind of nonsensical and psychopathic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because Travis, Travis Bickle is a fictional character and... Uh, well, Billy in the film isn't. Uh, but even though that part of the script was cut out, we kind of liked that that was a shadow of of his character. So, yeah. So that's why we it was kept, a kept funny little bit where where I think that I'm Travis Bickle's illegitimate son, and Martin's character, Martin Colin Farrell Colin, says, Colin Farrell says, that's impossible. You can't be Travis Bickle. You could be Robert De Niro's son, but that's he says. Are you saying you're Robert De Niro's son? He's like, no, I'm Travis Bickle's son. He's like, well, you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is possibly genetically meta, which is the first, <laughs> which was the original title of this film. Oh, yes, right, okay. genetically well, meta. We didn't, didn't think it would do well in Kansas. <laughs> that's a great title. I think that's the next one. Yeah, excellent. Well, at least we've we've got something out of today already. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned as well, Chaz Palminteri in Bullets Over Broadway was a, a bit of a. Oh no! I'm, I actually it was Chaz Palminteri and Sean Penn's relationship in Hurley Burley. Oh, okay. Was but you know what? Actually, no, that's true. Actually, I did mention that uh, there is a similar to also Chess Palminteri and John Cusack in mm. Bullets Over Broadway so you're, mm. you're not wrong actually mm. and, and and he is there is a similar a bit of a muse he is a muse for John Cusack who is who is a, a playwright yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we we took we took a stab at the, this this. Uh, we ripped off everybody. We ripped off everybody. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's it's you've seen a, the 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 buddy thing ever since Romeo and Mercutio. There's this. I think that dynamic has always been there, and we took a stab at it. You know. Yeah. But you were saying, you know, you were ripping off everyone, obviously, in a, um, a humorous way. Yes. But how much of adaptation was in your mind as you were writing this? No, I mean, I'd seen it years ago, but I, I only saw it once and I didn't really think about it at all. Maybe these things go through, you know, by mm. osmosis, but I, I, I didn't rewatch it and uh, I wasn't thinking about it. I spoke to you before uh, for a video interview, which will be up on the sign a little bit, about inspirations and stuff, but you seem to be saying that you kind of secluded yourself and just sat down and wrote it. That it I mean, you say you riffed off other people, but there were no conscious... No, uh, I like it, 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 as a director. Maybe in my in, in a very sh strange way, I was thinking of a, a, a war between Sam Peckinpah and Terence Malick, uh, an esoteric, uh, uh, odd um, cinematic war, or, or a love child of the two, mm -hmm. another love child, um, and, and that was it. Can you do something that is equal parts Peckinpah uh, and equal parts? Uh, you know the spiritual spirituality of and the visual gentleness of uh, of Malik. Um, Kurosawa, Kurosawa, Kurosawa was there too. Um, that's more of a straight rip off though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it was more of that Peck and Pa Malik thing. Um, I think we probably ended up with more Peck and Pa than Malik 
in the finished thing. Watch how many m- manic movies would have the lines, it's their blood and his puke. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the, the original uh, Tree of Life, I think. <laughs> yeah, Jessica Chastain, it was one of the few lines that she actually had. Um, no, um, but like going back to the Peckinpah thing, there was a lot, there, there, there's a lot of sadness and, and gentleness in his best work, I think. So that was... Uh, probably why that was a touchstone for me in Bruges wasn't a huge um, financial success no. but critically it did well so you know has that did that make making this difficult um, did it make it easier um, just about the same actually although we made this with less money than we did Bruges because I think just because of the financial climate we just just and weirdly there was much more visually to, to achieve in this than there was in Bruges mm. um, but no I mean I, I wouldn't say there was a hundred people beating down my door to make this but uh, but you only need one good one um, so so we found we found, found like there's a lot of film for money and BFI and um, and American money in the form of CBS but a balance so that no one really had uh, any kind of artistic say that uh, would be above mine right which is kind of what I wanted on Bruges and we kind of just about got away with it um, and I, I'm, I, I kind of don't really want, want to be in the place of making films that I can't completely control so we can rule you out of the running for Star Wars Episode 7 oh yeah we? although like Star Wars was my favourite thing in the world when I was 7 years old but my kind of Star Wars would be very different <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd quite like to see it though if it did a sort of in Bruges style kind of twist halfway through <laughs> yeah. my question for you I guess Sam as well is was it written in the script for you to execute one of your dance moves or was that natural as it happened was there a dance move in the was script there? I don't think there is I any I dancing s- I thought I spotted a little one really when you're telling your story around the fire and you got your flare gun I think oh maybe that's I more of a, it. no that's a kung fu move yeah that, yeah, I think so yeah that's a kung fu move yeah a couple of hip shakes but not really yeah, yeah no I, I I don't think I put any dancing I neither, neither did uh, Christopher I think we uh, yeah yeah we, we we missed out on that one yeah you yeah, two we are famous for that I mean yeah, yeah. we uh, we didn't we, we reserved uh, dances dance moves we've been I think we've gotten we, they've they've caught us. <laughs> that you put dance moves Yeah, in I think every they're catching on thing. to me and Christopher. Uh, yeah, yeah, Chris says he won't a, do any anymore. There is a supercut, certainly of you on online. Yeah, on all your yeah. dance moves. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the story's the secret's out. The secret's out. Yeah, so we gotta we gotta be a little more economical. Um, I asked you this before in, in concerns uh, as concerns the graveyard scene of the story we were just mentioning there's a story that's that's told by Sam's character in the film and it's a shootout in a graveyard yeah. scene and I noticed at the time that the character Hans who's played by Christopher Walken stands up and starts shooting people next to a grave that says Gruber and in my mind as a diehard fan I went yeah, hang on I can connect some dots here what's the connection here now I also noticed watching it again that I, I think I'm right in saying that there's a rock as in R-O-U-K-E gravestone because you told me at the time that was a production designer have you heard more people notice this the uh, the, the rock thing no that was a deliberate uh, 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 little elbow little stab um, but uh, but the Gruber thing I, I think I said that to you before I wasn't aware of it and even now I don't think I, so that must have been a real uh, a real blinking or miss it I, I th- uh, no a real gravestone because I don't think they put any, <laughs> any any names on our fake gravestones that we ah. had in there so I, I unless it it was the production designer who's a great one David Wasco slipping something in but I don't think oh, Die okay. Hard would be one of his um, favoured motifs okay alright 
Well, I'm curious. Thank you. You saved my curiosity about the work. <laughs> That's weird. I thought I thought you know you were maybe an action movie buff and you were secretly like peppering the entire thing with little references. No, no, no. Just the just the rock one okay. <laughs> for other reasons. He's going to beat the shit out of me if, if he ever finds out. I've seen the wrestler. I'd be worried. I know. <laughs> Sam says he's a nice guy. I, nice I think guy. he's a nice guy. He is a nice twice. guy. I think yeah. he's, he's a sweetheart. I had a good time with him. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Who knows? People have moods. <laughs> Yeah. What was it about Shih Tzus that you wanted to see? Well, how did you pick the dog? What made you go right? This is the dog that we're going to uh, um, cut around. Just the, I just wanted the cutest possible dog you can find, um, and 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 the most incongruous for a, a psycho like Woody Harrison's character to to be there with. Um, but they're just cute. They've got, they've got funny eyes. This one's got funny, eyes, kind of funny bus eyes. They kind of go both ways, and uh, but it had to be cute and fluffy. Um, but he's still kind of a bit bedraggled in it. He's a bit of an indie shih tzu. Because he was your co-star for a lot of the films, Sam. I mean, he's... Yeah, yeah. He, he's uh, very well-behaved, Bonnie. Yeah, she. Yeah. Oh, very, sorry, I do apologize, well be- Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> She's very well-behaved. Not yappy at all. And Good. Yeah, really cool. So that old saw about not working with animals, in this case, was not particularly a concern. Yeah, no, she, she was great. She was really, really awesome. On her yeah. marks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Did she get a bigger trailer than you? or was it? Um, yes, Same. big, big trailer. <laughs> I should I should ask maybe after this, but um, Matchstick Man is one of my favorite films. Oh, yeah, right I, I now. I absolutely love it. I was wondering... Sir Ridley Scott. Sir yes. Ridley Scott, yeah. Yes. I was wondering whether you might revisit that character in any way. Is that... Um, well, you know, I do. I think I do versions of that yeah. character a lot. I mean, there's there's elements of that character in Seven Psychos and Iron mm-hmm. Man, and and he's a bit of a nymph, mm-hmm. that guy, you know. But um, but I think we've put him to bed with Seven <laughs> Psychopaths. I think we did. We took the cake. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. The, the sidekick character is, you know. And there's a twist in that one as well. Mm. So it's uh, you, 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 you can only do that trick so many times. Sure enough. I mean, I mean, yeah. you essentially, guess what I was about to say, which is I felt that this was a spiritual follow-on from. Yeah, from the- yeah. This this is uh, on another level, though. This takes <laughs> this takes it to another level. And exactly how many psychopaths are there in the movie? Have you counted? Aha, uh-huh. no. And it depends on your definition of psychopath too. Okay. But I think there probably aren't more than three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Woody, Woody, Tom, Woody, Tom Waits, Tom Waits' girl, uh, wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, almost more than Tom because Tom might not necessarily be. Yeah, um, and we don't really want to spoil it. No, we don't want to spoil any, it. But anymore. but some psychopaths are a little more empathetic than yeah. others. Sure, Mickey Rourke, of course. Oh. Mickey Rourke, yeah. <laughs> oh, off screen. Oh, I'm sorry, our libel lawyer is on the phone. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I've got to ask you quickly, I mean, what have you got coming up next? Because, Sam, I was looking at your sort of yeah. IMDb page, which is not always to be trusted. But yes, yes, according yes. to that, it's, you've got four or five things that are in various stages of... I get three approach. lead roles in the can, mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens with those movies. It's yet to be seen if they have distribution or not. But then, uh, And then two sort of cameos that I did for very dear friends of mine. Cool. Yeah. So anything you're particularly excited about? Yeah, well, Single Shot, Better Living Through Chemistry, and The Way Way Back with Steve Carell. They're all, I mean, it's all pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I've got a a script that I wrote a couple of years ago that's sort of ready to go with a very strong female lead. Hurrah. For once, uh, (laughs) for me. Uh, Yeah, 55-year-old lead um, woman character. Um, 
but I, I'm gonna kind of like I did with After Bruges gonna take some time to travel and write some more things either a play or a film and uh, get back to either that or one of the new scripts in about two or three years or something okay. It's interesting you say 55-year-olds because I, I did a breakdown once of all the um, the ages at which people win Oscars, basically. And if you're, if you're a guy, it helps to be in your 40s or 50s. And if you're a woman, you almost never win an Oscar in your 50s. Oh. So there clearly aren't a lot of roles for women in their 50s. Uh-huh. So huh. anybody who is in their 50s is going to want that part. Yes. So you, that should help. Good. No <laughs> pressure because it's completely Oscar bait. <laughs> I'm done with the indie kind of new wavy thing. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going all it's, Harvey yeah. Weinstein. It's something yeah. with a, with a with yeah, disability, yeah, yeah. right? King's probably probably too. Things. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. My character has a lisp and a hump. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just I'll just start inscribing the statuette now. In that yeah. Case. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you going to be back? I, one of your plays, obviously, is is in London next summer with Daniel. Yes, Radcliffe. with Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, I'm going to be back and be a little part of that. Uh, just pop in and give any because it's a, a play that's about 10 or 12 years old mm-hmm. no probably she's 14 15 um, but just to be back to see if anyone what play needs is any, that uh, they... the cripple of Inish Milan oh yeah so to see if anyone needs some you know help with any of that and for a week or two and see how that goes cool. it could be fun I already have my ticket so I'm oh, oh really I do generally yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> alright well with that um, Martin McDonough and Sam Rockwell thank you very much thanks, thanks a lot Cheers. thanks a lot that was fun Happy, good chaps. They were absolutely lovely. Yeah, it really was, good fun. It was a real delight to meet Sam Rockwell. I've wanted to for a long time, and he is a very charming man. Martin McDonough, fit director. Um, he is a fit director. He's very much on the list of fit directors. Um, I really think we should write that feature one day. <laughs> one day it's going to happen. I, I, I'm having sort of dark nights of the soul about this feature. I'm not <laughs> sure if it's a good thing. I really don't know. Um, anyway, that is it from this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, which is an Ian Freer phrase that I've appropriated for the podcast. And um, we will be discussing a small film called, sorry, let me see if I get this right, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Um that promising. doesn't make any sense. Sounds promising. We'll be talking to some of its stars as well. Ooh, Ooh. how exciting. So uh, do look out for that. And our Hobbit spoiler special will also be up at some point next week. Depending on uh, Ali, who right now is looking like a gust of wind might blow him over and kill him. Uh, yeah, but that's just me normally. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Until then, it is goodbye from Ali, the whitest man alive. Hi there. <laughs> it's oh. goodbye from Ian. Goodbye. Um, this is my last sort of podcast before the big day yeah so I'd like to wish everyone happy Hobbit Day fair enough uh, Helen um, oh, well, goodbye goodbye you'll be back I, I, I hope to you won't be here next week though I might not be no you might not be I have a, a top secret mission to, mm. uh, to go on okay fair enough and it is goodbye from me and I'll see you next week 